Very good. Well, let's pray together. God, we're thankful for the morning you blessed us with. Just another day to enjoy this environment, to be with people that we really care about and appreciate, to spend time in your presence and to uh, open up your word to be able to see what you'd have to say to us about how we are to live as your people, about who you are and how you feel about us. Thank you for everyone who is here and the meaningful work that they do uh, in the places that they're at, for the churches that are represented here. We pray for your blessing upon each place. We pray that we are the people of God you've called us to be and that we live in such a way that attracts people to Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, at all times and all ways that Jesus is the one who receives all honor and praise and glory, for he's the only one who is truly worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're anything like me, your antenna goes up high anytime you hear somebody say, I guarantee it. Uh, personally, I have spent way too much money on late night television products, said yes to one too many can't miss opportunities, and got my hopes up way too high over the latest hair restoration process because of some nice sounding guarantee made by some huckster. And so when you hear me say this morning to you, I guarantee it, uh, if you're a bit nervous about that, I certainly understand. But the guarantee I'm going to share with you this morning, I promise you, you can take it to the bank. And I say this with confidence because I'm not the one who's making the guarantee. Uh, Peter, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is the one who makes the guarantee. In other words, this guarantee is backed by God. And what's his guarantee? His guarantee is simply this, is that you can live your life in such a way that you have a major impact on the world. And really, isn't that what we all desire? I mean, when you think about the future and you think about your funeral service someday, do you envision people showing up and saying things like this? Well, I, I'm just here because I wanted to catch up with some old friends. Or do you envision people showing up and sharing stories about how you helped shape their life? And if we're honest, that's what we all desire, right? We want some of those stories to be said about us and the impact that we've had on other people. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, he uses negative language, but he makes that guarantee. And so listen to the words that he speaks. He says this, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will, and I want you to notice he doesn't say they might. Might is possibility language. Will is guarantee language. He says they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's rephrase from the negative to the positive. He says, you will be effective, you will be productive, you'll be fruitful. You'll have an impact on the world, you'll bless people, you'll, you'll bless your community, you'll bless the environment that you're in, absolutely guaranteed. You say, it's exciting, but how does Peter make that promise? I mean, he doesn't even know me. And that's true, but here's what he does know. He knows that you've been given everything that you need to make the world a better place. What exactly have we been given? Well, Peter goes on to say, here's what you've been given. You've been given the power of God. Listen to his words, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. His power. In the same way that God worked on our behalf to save us, God continues to work through the power of the Holy Spirit to make us the type of people that can make the world a better place. 
And so he says, that's the first thing that you've been given, but the second thing you've been given are these promises of God. He goes on to say in verse 4, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Someone once made the observation there are 365 promises of God, one for every day. I don't know if that's true or not. I've never taken the time to actually count them. But what I do know is this, that every one of those promises has the power to draw you in the direction to living like Jesus. So for instance, Jesus makes the promise, I'll meet your every need if you'll seek first the kingdom of God. In a world in which says, hey, you need to take care of yourself right now because nobody else will, it's that type of promise that motivates me or gives, empowers me to say, no, I need to set the right priorities, and I can do that because Jesus is going to take care of me. It's guaranteed. It's a promise. Jesus goes on. He promises this. He says, I'm coming back one day. In a world that says you need to live for right now and what makes you happy and fulfills you, it's that promise that empowers me to say, no, you know what? I, I can live for the future instead of right now. And so Peter says, I want to remind you, you can live this type of life that's fruitful, that's effective, guaranteed, because you've been given everything you need. You've got power, divine power, the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have these promises of God that you can bank on, so you know how things are going to work out if you walk faithfully with him. But then Peter kind of moves directions, and he says also, but, but you got to participate. you got to show up. There's some things you have to do as well. And he goes on, and he says this, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Now, we're going to talk in just a moment, really our main focus is on what we're going to add to our faith. But I want to encourage you to take just a moment to underline that that phrase, make every effort. What comes to mind when you think about making every effort? For me, I, I think about a 16-year-old kid on prom night, boys specifically. Because if it's an ordinary date night, here's what he's going to do. I know because I've raised two boys. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to throw on a pair of jeans and a hoodie. He's going to swipe on some deodorant. He's going to walk through a mist of cologne. He's going to clear out the empty Gatorade bottle, bottles in the passenger side of the, his car and throw them in the back seat. He's going to text his girl when he gets to the driveway, I'm here. And when she walks out and sits down in the front seat of the car, he's going to say, what well, sounds good for dinner? But this isn't an ordinary date night. This is prom night. And so he's made every effort. He's taken the time to have his car detailed. I mean, it's spotless. Looks great. He's taken a full hour to shower and shave and put goo in his hair. His shoes shine. When he shows up the front door, he has flowers in his hands. He's got the perfect music queued up for the car ride to the restaurant. And it's a restaurant that he booked a week in advance. Because this is prom night. Peter says in this text, I want you to be like that guy. Specifically, I want you to make every effort to add these qualities to your faith. It's not about you. It's not about your effort. It's the Holy Spirit and what he's doing inside of you. But you participate. You show up. You make every single 
effort. And this passage over the past uh, year and a half, two years, has come to mean a lot to me for this reason. It's because we were forced during this time to kind of slow down, and it, it moved us away from thinking a lot about programming, and we tend to think a lot about programming our churches. If we can just get the right program, if we can just get the right process, then we as a church, we're going to be effective, we're going to reach people, so we're constantly searching for programs and processes. And what I needed to be reminded of is this. So often it's not about what you can program, it's about you becoming the person that Jesus wants you to be. And if you'll become the person Jesus wants you to be, good things are going to happen, regardless of whether or not you've got all the processes and programs and strategies figured out just right. And I think periodically we need that reminder. And so Peter goes on, he says, okay, we're going to add some things to our faith, and you're going to make every effort to do it. And the first one he says is this. He says, you're going to need to add goodness to your faith. Specifically, he uses a word in the original language, means which refers to moral excellence. So he's saying this, he's saying, I want you to make every effort to make sure you're excelling and doing what is right and not what's wrong. Now, very few of the people in Peter's audience that could be said, could be said of. Uh, even though these people have given their faith to Jesus Christ, they've gone back to living a fairly hedonistic lifestyle. Why was that? Well, it was simply because this, there was a group of false teachers that showed up and kind of impressed upon them that, you know what, it's your right and your privilege to live in such a way that, you, that you're happy and you're fulfilled, and, and that's really the meaning of freedom. It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? And that's the message that we're bombarded with 24-7 these days. Kind of two slogans these days, do what makes you happy and you be you, right? You hear it all the time, just, just live your life and it's okay, we're going to all live our lives. And maybe it's not said that directly, but it plays like white noise. The Instagram posts that we see, as a white noise and the plot lines of TV shows and movies, and that white noise and the lyrics of our favorite songs. And like white noise, it has put a lot of people to sleep. Instead of making every effort to identify kind of those sinful struggles that we have and address them and deal with them, Many of us have just decided, you know what, if I can just measure up to society's definition of what makes a good person, then that's good enough. And, and how does society define a good person? Well, basically, it kind of goes like this. Don't, don't be a jerk and, and treat your family decent and be a good steward of Mother Nature. Don't ever judge. And if you can do that, then, then you're a good person. And Maybe that's a good place to start, but that's a far cry from excelling at doing what's right and not what's wrong, right? If you're going to excel at doing what's right and avoiding what is evil, it's going to require some effort. And we could talk a lot about a lot of different things here, but I just want to impress upon us this one principle at least. It demands that you be honest with yourself. And it's hard for a lot of us to be really self-reflective and honest with ourselves. And so I want to encourage you in a couple of ways as we think about honesty. I want to encourage you to end your day just taking 15 minutes to reflect upon your day and do an honest evaluation. Just ask some simple questions. Was I honest in my dealings with people today? Did I use my words in a way to build people up, to bring life instead of death? Did I operate from a spirit of humility? Did I capitalize on opportunities to do good? Did I avoid sinful behavior? And if not, why not? And so we do that daily. 
that gets us to a place of honest reflection. But then once a year at least, or maybe once a quarter, I would encourage you to go through what is referred to in the 12-step world as a searching and moral inventory. And this is a much more in-depth look in which you really examine what's going on in your life. You ask questions about your personality. You ask questions about your relationships and your priorities. You ask questions about uh, just your physical well-being. Trying to get at the heart of what it really looks like and what's happening in your life in an honest way. It's hard work. It's tedious work. It's scary work. But this is what's required if you're going to live a life of moral excellence. It's this degree of effort. It's this degree of honesty. And so he starts here and he says you need that goodness to your faith. But then he goes on to say we're going to add some knowledge to our goodness as well. And what Peter specifically is referring to, of course, is God's truth. And he's setting up the expectation that we're going to constantly be growing in our understanding of God's nature and our humanity, the world he's created, his desires and purposes for our lives. Of course, another word for knowledge is what? It's, it's wisdom. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, he talks about the value of wisdom in this way in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 10 through 13, or 10 and 11. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more profitable than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. He says this is the value of, of God's truth, of wisdom, of knowledge. And because it's so valuable, he goes on to say, pay whatever price you have to pay, your time, your energy, your effort, whatever is required to make sure you acquire wisdom in life. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Do whatever it takes to acquire wisdom and understanding God's truth and what makes wisdom so valuable. We can talk a lot about this, but there are a couple of things that come to my mind immediately. One is this, God's truth provides protection in a dangerous world. Writer Proverbs goes on to say in 4 verse 6, Do not forsake wisdom, and they will protect you. Love her. And she will watch over you. What does wisdom protect us from? Or who does wisdom protect us from? You know the answer to this from the evil one, right? Because just as he did at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, the evil one continually tries to get us to question God's nature and God's promises and God's warnings, God's motivation. And just as he did to Eve, he gets in our ear immediately and he says things like this, hey, Nothing but good can come out of you acting on what you most desire in life. It's just the way he operates. And what makes it so difficult to, to identify his lies is he wraps them in elements of truth, right? In so many ways, it sounds right in the moment. And so how do you decipher what's true and what's not true? Well, old illustration, you know it well, but I think it's effective and it hits the point. How do those who have been trusted with identifying counterfeit money learn to identify counterfeit money. Do they study counterfeit money? No. You know that, right? There are way too many variations being produced all of the time. It would keep you too busy trying to look at those variations. And so they do this. They study real currency. And they know it so well that immediately when they see what is fake, 
it leaps out to them. They identify it. This isn't the real thing. What Peter is saying, that's, the, that's what I want for you. I want you to know God's truth so well that whenever you come up with something that isn't right, which isn't true, it just leaps off the pages at you. You see Satan's deceit immediately. You don't get wrapped into it. You don't get tied into it because you know what's real. You know truth. And the second reason it's so valuable, and that's this, is it provides stability in a chaotic world. I think this is the point Jesus is making at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, God's truth, it's, it's rock. It's what anchors us when the storms of life hit us. It's the truth of God's word that's held us together over the past year and a half, two years, isn't it? It's the truth that God's still in control. It's the truth that God still sees me and he still hears me. It is the truth that God's always working on my behalf for my good. It is the truth that God's coming back. Jesus is coming back. He's going to renew all things. It's that type of truth that has held us together, not, not just being able to survive, but we've actually been able to thrive in this chaotic, messy, difficult time. God's truth. But let's be honest. We have a good bit of knowledge of the truth, right? And yet many of us still struggle to live out the ways of Jesus. And so Peter then says, here's what you need to do. You need to add self-control to your knowledge. Going back to the writer of Proverbs and his wisdom, he says this, Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Just as an ancient city with broken down walls was a prime target for its enemies. The writer says a person who has any element of their life, be it your, your thoughts, your feelings, your body, that's not in control, prime target for the evil one. And this reason we fail 99% of the time, right? I mean, when we fail 99% of the time, it's for this reason. It's not because we don't have the knowledge. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We just don't have the self-control, the self-discipline to follow through. Now, when, we, when you fail, what's the natural impulse? The natural impulse is to tell yourself, i got to try harder, right? i, I just got to be in it. i got to white-knuckle it. I've got to get through this. I've got to do this better. But Scripture says, no, that's the wrong approach. It's not to try harder. That's not the answer. It is to surrender more, specifically to surrender more to the Holy Spirit and Paul reminds us of this in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 and then verse 25. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In more cases than not, the reason that we veer off path is because we fail to take the, the time to maybe consult with the Holy Spirit before we make a decision. Or because we neglect to cry out to the Holy Spirit in the heat of the moment, we're in the verge of losing self-control. Or we fail to look to the Holy Spirit to provide a way out, making a better decision in those particular moments. We just neglect involving the Holy Spirit in our lives. Crying out to the Holy Spirit when you're in the heat of the moment is one of the best possible decisions you can make. 
But of course, a better decision is to work with the Holy Spirit way in advance so that you're not stuck throwing up a Hail Mary plea for help in that particular moment, right? Let me illustrate it for you this way. When is the best time to keep a boulder from rolling downhill? Is it when the boulder is already halfway down the hill or when the boulder is the top of the hill? When an emotion, when a desire picks up too much steam, you're done. It will take control. And it doesn't matter once it's already picked up that steam. It's going to crush you no matter how hard you try to push back against it and get it back up the hill. In some ways, at that point, the statement, I couldn't help it, it's actually true. It's just not legit, right? The answer is we got to make some top-of-the-hill decisions. And so let me share with you just a few simple top-of-the-hill decisions when it comes to self-control. First top-of-the-hill decision is this. I'm going to be 100% committed. <laughs> Author by the name of Benjamin Hardy, he speaks about the importance of being 100% committed. He said, if you're only 98% committed to a diet in every future situation you're in, you have to ask yourself, is this one of those times I'm going to eat outside of the diet? He goes on to say, by asking this question, usually while you're, while you're in the heat of the moment, you have to weigh back and forth in your mind what you're going to do. And the whole back and forth decision-making process leads to decision fatigue or a loss of willpower. By only being 98% committed to a goal or principle, you lack the ability to adequately predict your own behavior. You often enter into situations where you don't know what the outcome will be. You deal with decision fatigue in the heat of unideal decision-making situations, such as what you're being offered, when you're being offered your favorite uh, dessert. By watching yourself repeatedly fail on your commitment, your identity becomes confused, as does your confidence. So it's to start with, uh, you've got to be 100% committed. Now, of course, even when you have that type of 100% committed commitment, there are going to be moments in which your emotions push back against that commitment, right? They're going to, they're going to want you to revisit that, that commitment. And when that happens, the best thing you can do is to refuse to engage in the conversation. Uh, Michael Jordan, who was deeply committed at least to his craft, basketball, very self-disciplined, he made this statement. He said, once I made a decision, I never thought about it again. That's really what it takes. Never think about it again. But in those moments in which you find yourself getting ready to have the conversation again, it's helpful to have something with you that reminds you of why you made that original commitment. Uh, to be able to refer to, to be able to say, yes, this is why I want to stick to this particular commitment. It can be helpful to have a list. So here's what I'd encourage you to do as well, just practical application. I want you to think about one area of your life that you feel like maybe it's a little bit out of control at times. I want to encourage you to make a list of 20 reasons you want to stick to original commitment, that you're just not going to do that anymore. Or on a positive side, a list of 20 reasons of why you want to do things in a healthier, better way. And I would encourage you to keep that with you, and I'd encourage you to review it daily. So here's why I've made this particular commitment. Now, ultimately, that conversation is far less likely to take place, and it's far less likely that you give into it if you make a 100% commitment 
just to stay away from that particular activity, right? So for instance, if you eat cookies and cake until you get sick, don't bring them into your house. Now you say, well, it doesn't give me any problem when I'm at the grocery store and I see those, right? But it does when you're hungry, you're angry, you're lonely, you're tired. It's, it's hard. <laughs> well, I could use a different illustration, Sue, if you want me to, because there's those other things, yeah, for me. Uh, and so you, you want to stick uh, to the commitment and, and just stay away from it if you can. Now, obviously, there are some things that you're like, well, I, I, didn't, I wasn't searching for temptation. It just kind of snuck up on me, and here I am. I'm in the middle of it. What do, you, what do you do then? You need a good exit strategy, and I would say there are two components to a good exit strategy, and, and one is this. It's accountability. You need accountability in your life. And what's accountability? Here's how I think a lot of us have defined it. Accountability is somebody I can call after I've blown it, and I can share with them how I've blown it. And then the person on the receiving end, that person is going to say, thank you so much for being honest with me, and I want to encourage you to just start moving forward. And yeah, that's an element of accountability. But here what I, is what I believe true accountability is. And I, and I don't even like the word accountability. I would just call it friendship. This is what I think spiritual friendship is. It's the person I can call in the heat of the moment who's going to help me make a better decision. That's, that's what it is. And so there are a couple guys in the back row that do that for me in my life and have been those types of friends. And everybody needs those types of friends. Now, there's a second part, and you know this one as well. Sometimes you just got to gotta get out. You got to run. It's the second part of an exit strategy, and Paul speaks to it when it comes to sexual sin. He says, just, just flee from sexual immorality. Don't consider it. Don't debate it. Don't fantasize about it because you're going to end up in the wrong place. And that applies to any particular area of our life that can be out of control, right? If you spend time in the conversation thinking about it, you're, just, you're in trouble. So he says, just get out and move on down the road. And then we go to the next quality he mentions, and he mentions godliness. And it sounds a whole lot like goodness. And there's a lot of similarity, but there's a huge distinction as well. There are people who are good. They don't lie. They don't cheat. They don't steal. They're good, but they're not godly. And there are people who do good things. They uh, they do the dishes for their family, uh, they're the homeroom mom, they fight for social justice, but they're not godly. A godly person is always going to do their best to be good and do good, but just because a person is good and does good does not mean they're necessarily godly. So what makes a person godly? Well, I want us to go to the words that were spoken about a man who was identified as kind of the one godly guy left in his generation and his society, Noah. And this is what's written about him in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. I want you to notice that Noah didn't gain God's favor simply because he, he thought better thoughts or he avoided sinful behavior or he did good work. Noah gained God's favor because he made space for God in his life all of the time. It didn't matter if he was out chopping wood for his boat project or if he was 
preparing to offer a sacrifice at worship. He walked with God 24-7. A godly person? A godly person is a person uh, who is inclusive of God and deeply aware of God all of the time. A godly person is just as mindful of God on Monday at work and Wednesday at soccer practice and Friday at the beach as he is of God on Sunday morning during a worship service. And yet, if we're honest, we can often go days or weeks without giving a whole lot of thought to God, can't we? Except for that Sunday morning experience, if we're not careful. And so as a people, we have to make time to carve out, to just enter into the presence of God, to be deeply aware of God. That should be a first priority in our daily life, weekly, quarterly, yearly. In fact, here are just a few, again, practical suggestions. I would suggest to you every day you're carving out at least 30 minutes just to be in the presence of God, to hear from Him, to worship Him, to spend time with Him intentionally. But at least once a week, you're putting aside work, you're putting aside email, you're putting aside the honeydews just to rest and to play and enjoy the presence of God. I'd encourage you to fast once a quarter. You just decide, I'm going to give up some things so that I can intentionally spend time in the presence of God, just being with Him and enjoying Him in this relationship that we share once a year. Once a year, do something that reorients your heart back towards God. For many of us, it's this week, right? It may be traveling someplace else. It may be taking a course online. But it's just something to orient your heart back towards God and spending that time with Him. And then he goes on to say this, to godliness we must add mutual affection. Mutual affection specifically refers to those who are in our family. Uh, if you treat your family well, if you're kind to them, if you love them, you're going to make an impact. It's going to make a difference. There are going to be people at your funeral service who tell some really good stories about you because they've been part of your family. Got a couple of family members up here. There'll be great stories told about them because they've lived this kind of life. <laughs> uh, and this, this is huge for most of us. Family means everything to us. And what's true of us was especially true for those who were living in Middle Eastern culture during the time of Jesus. Family was everything. And so on one occasion when Jesus is in a home and he's told by a group of people, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting to have a conversation with you, it probably was anticipated by everyone that he would just drop everything and go out to spend time with his family because family comes first, right? It does for me. If I'm on a phone call with you and one of my boys calls, guess who's going to be put on hold? That would be you. Unless you're crying or unless you're telling me about a Hawaiian vacation you want to send me on. Then I'll put them on hold. But otherwise, you're going to be put on hold because family comes first. And so I anticipate everybody in the home, when Jesus got that word, just anticipated he's, he's bolting. He's going to go spend time with his family. But he didn't. He didn't. Instead, Jesus, he said this. He replied to them, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And in that moment, Jesus forever redefined family, didn't he? That for Christians, no longer is blood thicker than water, but water is thicker than blood. That it is the spiritual family that matters. And we understand this intellectually, but until we embrace it to the depths of our heart, we're going to continue to struggle. 
I think it's been observed a thousand times at this point, but never before, in my opinion, have we seen Satan double and triple down on his efforts to divide us over every single matter from where we grew up to our ethnicity, to our financial status, to our politics, to how we handle certain situations. And it just can't happen because we're family and because family needs each other. And it takes effort to really do family well. And so just a, a few thoughts about thinking about your church family and making sure that's a good experience for everybody. I really believe one, it begins with a warm welcome. Have you ever been made to feel like an outsider? It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Everybody enjoys that, right? It's horrible. And so Peter says to the church in 1 Peter, he says this, greet one another uh, with, with a kiss. And we don't necessarily apply that in the same way, but the principle remains the same, right? That we are to engage with one another in a warm, loving way. Now, let's in on a little secret. Every church that I've been a part of believes they do this really well. <laughs> and when I suggest or bring to their attention that maybe that's not the case, they act really shocked and offended that I would even suggest that. And it's usually not me who's passing on this information. I'm just sharing with them an email I've received from a guest who has expressed their disappointing church experience. Now, to be fair, most Christians are very warm and gracious people with their circle of friends. And that's what makes them feel like we are the friendliest church in town. But so often what happens is we just, we don't see the people on the fringes. So let me remind you of what life is like in the church family for a person on the fringes. It's like going to a family reunion for the family that you just married into. Now, everybody there is friendly to you. They welcome you in a nice way. But you spend most of the rest of the day kind of watching them hug and laugh and tell jokes and family stories that you're really not a part of. So you're in, but you're not all the way in. And in some families, you can go a lifetime just sitting right there on those fringes. And that's especially true in the family of God. You have people in your churches, that's where they're sitting. They're on the fringes. And they're watching it, and it looks great, and they'd love to be a part of it. They're, they're just not sure how to get in there. And so just kind of building on that point, I want to encourage you to do everything you can to get people engaged in relationships as quickly as you possibly can. Studies say that if a person doesn't have seven meaningful relationships in a church in a relatively short period of time, they're not sticking around. They're, they're leaving. And so here, I want you to think about this. Who do you know in your church that needs you to go to lunch or coffee with them? Who do you need to invite into your home for a game night? Who needs an invitation to your small group? Who do you need to invite to join you in a ministry activity? Think about those people. And then we're down to about two minutes. So last quality I'm going to mention, he says this. He said you need to add to mutual affection. You need to love. And specifically, he moves from the family of God to the entire world. And when he says that, he's talking about your unbelieving neighbor. He's talking about the person you bump into at the grocery store. He, he's talking about the person that continues to post things on social media that just drive you nuts. He says you are to love all 
people. And if you're thinking, well, surely Peter doesn't mean, yes, he does. He does. Because Jesus goes on and he resets that expectation, right? He says, we're not just going to love our friends or family or neighbors. We're going to love our enemies as well. And he not only resets the bar of who we are to love from neighbor to enemy, he resets the bar of how we are to love. See, under the old law, the bar had been set here. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's a good principle. There's only one weakness to it. We don't love ourselves very well much of the time, right? And you think about the way you speak to yourself, the schedule you keep, the demands you make. We're pretty hard on ourselves at times. So Jesus comes along and he says, I want to reset that bar as well. We're not going to just love, ourselves, love people as we love ourselves. I want you to love people the way I've loved you. And how does Jesus love us? We're out of time. Think about these two things. He accepts us and he forgives us. And I'm convinced that there are two things the world needs right now that we'll be blessed by is acceptance and forgiveness. And it'll make a huge difference in people's lives. Now, if you've been watching the text at all, you said he skipped one. He skipped perseverance. And I did for this reason. Because if you make every effort to do all this, it's going to take a whole lot of perseverance. It doesn't come easily. It doesn't come quickly. It takes a lot of effort. But if you'll stick to it, you'll end up living the type of life that Chris Seidman spoke about last night. You'll be a letter, a letter of commendation to the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I guarantee it. No, no, God guarantees it. <laughs>